0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back to Suncast, Solar Warrior. I'm honored, as always, that you've chosen to spend this time with me and excited to bring you today's guest. Today's entrepreneur is doctor of engineering candidate, solar energy specialist, and two-time author, Mr. Michael Ginsburg Michael has spent his career helping embassies and government agencies implement solar and efficiency programs worldwide. And he's recently distilled his learning lessons and case studies into a pair of books on the topics of solar implementation, operations, and maintenance. You know, it's a rare skill to be a practitioner with the ability to actually teach and train others. And I thoroughly enjoyed an early look and a discussion with Michael into the best practices that he's helped bring to market with these texts. Stay tuned as Michael shares the key lessons, takeaways from his world travels and training. I'll also encourage you to head to mysuncast.com and check out the more than 200 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. Getting on the mailing list is of course a way that you can stay in touch and you'll know when the next episode drops. For now, Get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. We're going to dig deep today into the topic of operations and maintenance for solar plants, not just here in the United States where many of you listen in from, but globally. Our guest today is a world traveler like myself, Mr. Michael Ginsberg is the founder of a company called Mastering Green mastering green installs and commissions projects from three kilowatts residential up to about two megawatts uh, small utility has been training staff in u.s embassies worldwide in solar pv battery storage building systems and doing energy audits and he's also the author of two books we're going to talk about those books today the first is harness it and the second which just just recently launched and went live on amazon we'll certainly leave the links to these it's called photovoltaic power optimization it's all about o m and verification but first let's welcome michael welcome to suncast thanks a lot for having me absolutely and thanks for reaching out i love meeting folks in the industry who are doing exciting things and in particular folks whose focus is not just on the execution but also passing that knowledge along in the form of uh, of training and education i have m- i have many friends in the industry who Uh, do this sort of education and training. Virtually none of them have written a book, so I'm grateful to have someone on the show today who has uh, resources that we can point folks to. Uh, I often get questions about O&M and uh, general uh, PV basic knowledge, Having not written a book myself, it's always good to be able to have someone I can refer to. So thanks, thanks again for being on the show. So Michael, you're rather accomplished as at a relatively young age. Uh, congratulations for that. We have a similar background in that we both have worked for a nonprofit and government organizations around the world in our 20s, doing sort of doing the uh, the grunt work of development, right? Helping make sure that there's a sustainability embedded in uh, the in the in the culture. Uh, and ecology of the work that's being done around the world. Tell me a bit about that. How'd you get into working for embassies? Well, thanks a lot for uh, having me here again,
1: and appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk a bit about my experience. So, I started out, um, as you mentioned, working in nonprofits and helping to uh, develop the in backstop pro- projects. And I, I transitioned into um, the, the world of energy management when uh, I started working at. The U.S. Embassy in Niger, West Africa, in facilities, and uh, quickly realized the potential for solar energy to reduce the carbon footprint and and really to increase the uh, resilience of the of the facility. Based uh, so starting in, starting in that um, in that embassy, I, st- I I developed an expertise and a, and a bit of a, a niche in, um, in in embassy operations for for the U.S. government. And since then, for the past seven years, I've been working. As a consultant for different embassies worldwide, uh, providing, like you mentioned, uh, auditing, commissioning services, as well as technical training to uh, staff who work at the embassy. Uh, a lot of the embassies that we have are, are brand new construction, with oftentimes with solar, large solar arrays, or uh, with a, a sophisticated building automation systems. And the technical uh, staff are not too familiar with uh, some of the systems or maybe need some some additional background knowledge. So I, I go in and I, I
0: fill that gap. I think that is brilliant. It just goes to show, as I've said many times from uh, from the Suncast podcast, there are so many different ways to make money in this industry. I, uh, I'm always impressed when I meet a young entrepreneur like yourself who has found a way to carve out his own little niche and grow it and sustain a lifestyle that is that can be accretive to not just what we're all striving to do, which is to wean the world off of fossil fuels, but also to travel the world and and see and have new experiences. But recently, you have uh, you've traveled back uh, stateside uh, to get your doctorate in engineering. You're at Columbia University. Is that accurate? Yes, And while at Columbia, you are pursuing the doctorate, as I mentioned, where, where has your research been focused? I believe, uh, as I recall, it's mostly around uh, renewable energy grid integration, but I'd love for you to expound on that. Just get a little more, little more background on the specific area of engineering study.
1: So the more I worked in in, in specific facilities, the more I started to think about the larger scale impact that, that could be made. And so that took me back into academia where Now I do research and techno-economic analyses of how do we achieve deep decarbonization, particularly through solar energy and other renewable sources. So right now, my research is focused on solar grid integration, as in how do we increase the penetration of solar energy above 30 40% without dramatically increasing the cost. That has also led me to look at how do we decarbonize, not just the electric electrical sector, but also transportation, industry, et cetera. And that's primarily through, I'm looking currently at solar to fuel and solar to hydrogen, because hydrogen is used as the input product for a lot of industrial processes. So if we can decarbonize the production of hydrogen, which is currently produced through natural gas, seeing methane reforming, we can essentially decarbonize uh, a lot of the other uh, sectors that, that really need help.
0: First and foremost, let us uh, discuss the topic of your recent publications. In the summer, uh, you're quite a prolific writer. Not only are you involved in a number of industry publications, but in the summer, you released your first book, Harness It, and as I mentioned at the, uh, at the lead-in, you just, at the end of October, published your second book, Two in One Year ambitious I, suspe- I suspect that it's also contributing towards <laughs> your, your doctoral program i'd be i hope i sure hope so
1: <laughs> i hope so but probably probably only in a in a very small way the first book is called harness it and it came out of a desire that i realized as a student to create a one-stop shop for anyone interested in learning about the most vital aspects of renewable energy so when I was learning, I, I, I realized that there, are, while there are many texts on specific technologies like wind or PV, and these are primarily dense scientific texts or policy-oriented books, there wasn't anything out there that synthesized the two. So the purpose of this book was to synthesize this, combine the most salient points into an accessible resource, and to serve as a one-stop shop. And for me, it's really vital to allowing us as a society to tackle climate change and to understand the terminology so we can talk to each other on the same level. In this book, I go over the history of power production, how solar PV works, as well as wind energy and hydropower in some, in some detail for, you know, that will, be, that will be advantageous to engineers, as well as go over project development models and finance and the, and this, and the issues and concerns in grid integration of wind and solar energy.
0: It sounds really uh, all-encompassing. I wanted to ask a quick question before you move on to book number mm-hmm. two. Is I recall book number one, harness it, is really kind of meant as a textbook, and you've developed even some sample problem sets at the end of chapters and whatnot. Is that the is that the intention of the book?
1: Yeah, the primary audience is for a class, an introductory class in renewable energy, or you know, uh, as part of a, an MBA program that uh, has a specialization in the subject. It does include lesson plans that I developed for. For instructors and a solutions manual. However, I do feel that someone could pick it up and learn themselves. And this, this would be a really accessible way to do so. That's my hope. I try to include also some practical case studies from different countries from my experience. So that kind of helps us supplement the,
0: the theory that I go over. You know, many of our uh, our listeners not only are they um, <laughs> are they executives in solar companies that are often thinking about how to provide training for their staff, but also we have a, a number of folks who are themselves uh, training in uh, both the U.S., Latin America, and even uh, uh, abroad. So, I want to make sure that this resource is something they're aware of, and that I believe, given what I've what I've read about it, and What I've come to know through you about your sort of functional focus, I think that as a textbook, this ought to be something that folks are are considering as you know integrating into the way that they go about educating the layperson, as it were, or those who are looking to specialize. So again, the second book, Solar Photovoltaic Power Optimization, focused on enhancing power systems or system performance through O and M and verification. That came out right at the end of October. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's a newer book and. This also came out of a parallel need that I saw more as a technician and for an engineer in the field versus as a student learning about how systems work. So I I, I saw in the field a real need for greater understanding of PV system operations and maintenance and measurement and verification. A lot of the times models, when when financial models are run, they just assume a certain percentage for O&M. But beyond that, I was not able to observe a lot of understanding of how O and M for PV is done, except that it's that it's low compared to conventional generators. So, in many of the systems that I audited, I noticed a lack of of proper O and M, M and V, and and that that combined, they severely eroded the bottom line as well as the credibility of PV with already skeptical facility managers, because PV is you know sort of a new entrant, and um, and so oftentimes for the facility managers would be very. Hesitant to accepting the new technology and it would be pushed on them. So, you know, in this book, I really I go over the how PVE works in much more detail and the balance of system. You know, I talk about inverters and I talk about key trouble points. Talk also about safety precautions uh, and tools and methods. And I do also include um, practical case studies.
0: That is fascinating. and I love the the perspective and the lens through which uh, you just couched the argument for why the book needed to exist. And that is oftentimes uh, and much more so uh, in the world that, that you've been inhabiting, right, where there are facilities managers in these facilities uh, worldwide, as well as in the United States, that in many cases are getting this new technology foisted on them through an attempt to achieve certain lead points, et cetera. And the facility managers come in skeptical from the beginning. But I want to address another skeptical notion that I had and that I'm sure someone else uh, has thought about. You're a young man relative to the industry. Sure, you've had lots of experience. You've done a bunch of auditing. One of the questions that I'd love to just sort of table is, your experience is not 20, 30 years. Uh, How does the process of writing the book Get reviewed such that, there, that we establish credibility that you know the book is in fact useful as a technical training manual, as you suggest.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely a worth worthy question. In the process of writing the book, not only did I speak from my own experience, but I conducted a pretty thorough literature review. Primarily, uh, a lot of the data that I used came from NREL, which is highly respected, particularly when it comes to best practices. You know, in addition to that. I had input from from some of my colleagues and 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 experienced, more experienced folks uh, who are both in academia as well as industry. In the process of having the book published, while not exactly an academic peer review, the book was reviewed by by several industry um, experts, and uh, in fact, one uh, in particular an individual who, who founded, um, Helioscope, which is the, um, you know, the software that is used for design of, of uh, PV systems, Paul, Paul Grana. So, uh, I did, you know, solicit a, a lot of, of input and I do feel that, you know, it's very regular, rigorously researched and, uh, and has
0: been and has been vetted. I love that you uh, threw in there something I wasn't even aware of. Our good friend and uh, longtime Suncast uh, guest and fr- and uh, and listener, Mr. Paul Grana. So that is uh, that's fantastic, and certainly that lends a lot of credibility to the process for you. I would love to uh, dig in here to some of the pain points that we see in PV, especially around O and and verification. That the book specifically addresses. Let's dive down the rabbit hole a bit and pull out some of the top line learnings and lessons conveyed in the book. You start at the module level and you work your way through basically the production of putting a plant into operation. So I'll I'll let, I'll let you roll the story out.
1: Yeah. So I think specifically in this book, the topics that I go through, and then I'll talk about the pain points. The topics that I go through are, you know, practically how do you lock out and tag out a PV system? Um, and effectively de-energize because what, what are the nuances here and, and differences from traditional electrical systems? You know, you have to be concerned with, with uh, DC and AC power. And then I go into the primary failure modes of PV systems, not just the module, but also I talk about the balance of system. I talk about the batteries, both lithium ion and lead acid, the inverters, charge controllers, and wiring. And I go through step-by-step instructions both for diagnosing and fixing common failures, talking about measurement and verification. I touch on machine learning and PV, how it is currently used and how it could be used in the future. And then I kind of couch this all within the idea of reliability centered maintenance. So to give you a couple of examples, when it comes to the solar module itself, I'll talk about, you know, a potential failure mode, for instance, bypass diode failure and hotspots in the analysis I go through both, first the failure, then the effect is reduced power output, and potentially fire. The cause could be multiple things, but one that I highlight is uneven soiling. And then I show a diagram of, or a picture of, an infrared aerial image that shows you how to identify these abnormalities. I go through an analysis that takes the product of the severity, probability, and detectability, Talk about how do you detect it? So both you, you know using an infrared camera, you could use visual or aerial thermal imaging. You could have power monitoring to include uh, current transformers and measuring current from the combiner box, home runs at the inverter, or, or the back of the module temperature sensor. So so I, I take that specific example and then I go in the follow on analysis to how do we then then solve that problem? And so you know I go through each each really in a very detailed way, each component, and each way it can fail, and then each way that it could be resolved. I think another important, another important and um, critical risk for PV systems, especially older systems, is um, when you, you, you have um, DC ground faults, and you know, I don't want to go, go too deep into this, but essentially it could create a large hire, a fire hazard for your system, so, so knowing how to, to test, diagnose, and find the source of, the, of a DC ground fault is critical. You know, and, and I go into the effect of that, the cause, primarily, that that's that's the unintended electrical connection between a live conductor and a, an equipment grounding conductor. So, you know, for a technician, it's critical to know that this is something that could happen in a PV system, and then how do we resolve that? I go through that step by step so that it's, that it's really helpful for the technician in the field to just glance glance at the steps and and try to follow that while they're while they're diagnosing the system.
0: Hey, commercial solar friends! You've probably heard that 2020 starts the Solar Plus decade. Well, that doesn't just mean solar plus storage, it means solar plus intelligent software like DemandX, Extensible Energy's demand charge reduction software that inexpensively reduces demand and time of use charges by 30% without batteries or extra permitting. By including DemandX software in your proposals, you'll increase customer ROI, shorten payback times, and help close more commercial solar and storage deals. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your commercial solar project and start closing more sales in the Solar Plus decade. Get ready for comedy and fun coming in February at the inaugural Solar Comedy Slam to enter solar in San Diego. Produced by Chent Power Systems, a.k.a. CPS America, the Solar Comedy Slam will be the lit party to get 2020 started. Enjoy the shenanigans at this solar industry version of Last Comic Standing. Thanks to CPS America for bringing this fantastic idea to fruition. Whether you want to test your comedic metal or just get a good laugh at the expense of your industry colleagues, this will be a must-attend event at Intersolar. Get your tickets or your spot in the lineup at solarcomedyslam.com. Again, that's solarcomedyslam.com. Michael, I, I want to back up uh, to 10,000 feet again for someone who might be listening is thinking, golly, uh, h- how in the world am I going to carry this around as a as a technical reference manual? Uh, it's, it's more than theoretical. It's definitely getting into the weeds on how to identify, diagnose, resolve problems, unlike, you know, some other reference manuals like the Uglies electrical manual that is itself a, a brick and a Bible of, of doctrine. Um, your book is a scant 160 pages that contains, you know, a, a very, what seems to be uh, in-depth analysis, but my, my assumption therefore is that it's written very efficiently at a high level. I think that bears mentioning for those who might be thinking, I'm never going to buy this 500 page book. It's, we're not talking about a book that, <laughs> that is, you know, that's going uh, to sit on the shelf somewhere. It seems very packaged uh, in a way that can be you know, thrown in the truck and, and used as a field resource. Moving from ground faults, you know, one the next uh, level of investigation, I presume, is probably at the inverter level. I know that as an industry, we transitioned to more transformerless inverters. How has that impacted the nature of uh, of O and M and and diagnosis?
1: I would say going back to the issue of DC ground faults, um, a lot of systems are transitioning over to transformerless inverters, as you mentioned, but sometimes the um, the wiring actually hasn't um hasn't changed and so you can still have these these issues um with with systems that have um been been upgraded so to speak with transformerless inverters as you know you know you you, you don't have that that issue quite as much with um or or at all with with dc ground faults um it does take care of take, take care of that to a large extent primarily because you're you're able to um to sense ground fault current um uh, as low as 300 milliamps. So this this makes small DC ground fault currents detectable. The other issues that prevail or persist, I would say, are, you know, you still have capacitor failure within the inverters and simple things like just making sure that the inverter is housed in an appropriate environment. I know I can't tell you enough how many times I've seen the inverters outside of their operating temperatures, in especially in parts of Africa and you know, this might seem like a simple thing, but it severely erodes the, the bottom line when you have to replace the inverter two times more frequently than, than expected.
0: Which is n- almost never counted for in the financial model.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, another thing that's very practical and, and perhaps simple is, you know, in the field with, with, our, with, with, with the technicians I work with, we make sure that we're always checking the fan and how do we diagnose, it, you know, the over-temperature so if our fan's not operating, we, we have to check the power supply to the fan. If that's fine, then you replace it. If the fan is operating, check the sensor readings and perform a weekly inspection. And, and in fact, I go into a sample schedule for a facility and, and in terms of the frequency of doing these diagnostics. Of course, this is site-specific, but you know, based on my experience, I kind of put together a, a sort of an average
0: how do I leverage the knowledge that you've gained and that many others in the O&M side of the business have gained to proactively ensure that my assets do minimize long-term O&M issues? Yeah.
1: I mean, that's, that's a fantastic
0: question. I think the the first thing that you need
1: to do is to ensure that if you're investing over a hundred thousand, you know, you, you, you perform an energy audit of your system just, just to make sure that you're doing the system sizing accurately. Uh, I can talk about a specific example of where, we audited a system that was, was improperly sized based on erroneous utility data. So the first thing is, you know, connect some current transformers to your system, do a proper energy audit.
0: So just to be very specific, when you're referring to a system here, you're referring to the actual building management system, not the photovoltaic generating system, uh, just to dis- disambiguate there uh, don't need to go any further down. And I just want to make sure that if if someone's listening to this and they hear you say system, they're not thinking an audit of the PV system itself.
1: Yeah, I I actually, so I am talking about the PV system. Um, I mean, the first step I think in any, in any process before doing installation is to make sure you have an accurate, you know, estimate of your, of your consumption. And, you know, in in the industry we primarily say, well, we'll take utility data, but I think that it's critical to to take the, 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 the data uh, doing a proper energy audit. Of your of your facility consumption, yeah. So um, that's that's what I mean there. And then um, in terms of designing the system and, 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 and ensuring you know um, there are no long term O and M issues, you know designers need to take into account the uh, the maintenance. For instance, uh, one system I audited, two megawatt system in West Africa, the array had no access for the technicians to actually clean. Uh, so, so essentially, there, there was a tremendous out, reduction in output because there was no uh, ability for the, for the, um, the technicians to, uh, to actually clean the, the array. Another thing is, you know, make sure, spend, spend, spend a little bit more up front to negate long-term issues down the road. For example, um, m- most of the time, in, in my experience worldwide, people will use lead-acid batteries for PV because they're cheaper. You know, just take, a, take your car battery. That's a lot A lot of people do in, in, in some, some um, villages I've seen in, in Africa. And, and, it, and it works okay for, for a while, but um, uh, long, long term, the maintenance uh, is just horrendous. And for other, for other reasons, it's not an optimal way to store energy because uh, lead-acid batteries don't have the same benefits as lithium-ion in terms of um, depth
0: of discharge and, 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 and all those characteristics. What are some of the maintenance issues for those who might still be deploying older technology for batteries in, uh, in developing parts of the world. What are some of the maintenance issues to consider? And then perhaps we can get into some maintenance issues as well with more uh, advanced technologies like lithium-ion.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's a very exciting question for me and looking at the difference between lead acid and lithium-ion in particular and from a maintenance perspective. So with lead, with lead acid, you, know, you have the charge and discharge of sulfuric acid between the electrodes. Um, and on the positive plate, um, the electrolyte of concentrated sulfuric acid stores most of the chemical energy. And on the negative plate, you have sulfate ions that are repelled, and hydrogen ions um, are, that are attracted. So what happens is um, when you have a, sh- uh, a low depth of discharge um, or, or lack of lack of um, lack of charge from the PV system, you could have sulfation on the terminals. That increases the maintenance costs and reduces the life of the battery. So essentially, you know, what I emphasize is that lack of charge from solar and wind, which are variable renewable energy sources, can reduce the life and does reduce the life of a of lead acid battery by quite a lot. In the book, I, I am pretty uh, optimistic and because I think also a lot of literature has and a lot of knowledge is out there on maintenance of lead acid batteries. I, like, I do a deep dive into lithium-ion batteries because I think you know, it's my it's my hope
0: that, that those are the ones that I primarily used for um, for PV in the future. So, tell me a little more about uh, about the nature of lithium ion and some of the maintenance issues you consider there.
1: For a lithium ion battery, the primary failure mode that I talk about is lithium plating. Um, so, that's basically what happens when you have excess current um, that causes the lithium ions to accumulate on one of the um, the, the surface of the anode. Um, so, this does reduce the uh, battery capacity and cycle life. And um, the way to diagnose for that is you check the battery control panel, it will say the status, or you could check the, the charge controller output going to the battery. Um, you know, another one is thermal runaway. You've heard a lot about that, I'm sure, you know, in, in cell phone batteries. So as the, as the battery is smaller and smaller and you know, lithium ion has a high energy density, you can have overheating. At, particularly at 70 to 110 degrees Celsius from a variety of things like overcurrent, overcharging, and the um, the internal part of, of the battery, the, the, co- the, um, the cobalt ca- uh, cathodes decompose, and that has a, a, the effect of um, creating this feedback loop where the oxygen is released that burns the electrolyte, further increasing your, your temperature and pressure until it explodes. One of the improvements um, that I would want to mention for against thermal runaway is the use of um, cathodes that uh, that actually break down at a higher temperature. So you may have heard of like life PO as as I say a lithium iron phosphate is is perhaps one of the safest uh, commercially available uh, lithium ion batteries. So you know for instance so now to go to the next step of corrective actions for lithium plating, how do you prevent that? So how, so what you have to do is storing the battery in a shaded location. That's that's critical. Um, Preventing, o- preventing over voltage, typically above four volts per cell and ensuring your charge controller is set to the correct output voltage um, and ensuring you have a, you know, a, a battery management system. So that's, you know, that's how you mitigate the, uh, the risk of lithium plating for thermal runaway is similarly, you, you know, you can take the same steps, but in addition, you know, use a charge controller with um, maximum power point tracking. Uh, and temperature feedback to make sure that you can limit the current if the battery's overheating. And as I mentioned, invest in, or, inv- or you know, use a, a LifePo um, or lithium iron phosphate battery to mitigate that entirely.
0: One thing that you mentioned that I, I'd like to highlight as a, as an, in, an ending point here, we'll put a bookmark in the conversation, but there there, there's a lot of industry chatter around the idea of cleaning there's, you know, robotic cleaning solutions like, uh, you know, like the folks out of Israel and our friends over at Alliant Energy that uh, are tra- addressing cleaning at the utility scale. Uh, cleaning within the segment that you've been looking at, partic- particularly the sub-2 megawatt scale, which is by far going to be the fastest growing segment uh, in the world uh, in the coming 10 years. There's a lot of contention around whether or not to clean. What are you finding and what's, what sort of recommendations do you give in, the, in your manual? I've seen quite, quite
1: a, a, a range of, of, of um, uh, approaches to, to cleaning. And I actually go through two case studies of different facilities, both in West Africa, where cleaning is, you know, is, is, is arguably really, um, critical to a power output. Uh, and they both have different outcomes. So one is a, is a uh, 380 kilowatt solar carport in uh, Burkina Faso. And I went to the facility and, um, noticed that they were, they, they were getting less output than, uh, than expected. And so, you know, we, had, we did a cost-benefit analysis where we looked at three factors, the cost of cleaning, um, the lost output uh, due to soiling, as well as the lost output uh, due to cleaning downtime. You find the cost or the number of cleanings per year at which the cost is lowest. So it's essentially, you know, you're optimizing. And instead of just blanket saying, oh, we should do the maximum number of cleanings per year, we found um, that essentially three to four cleanings per year uh, was, was the best. Um, so it has to be, you have to take into account, you know, things like the cost of labor, you know, the cost of power loss in your in your area. The other example to finish the story was in Senegal and it was a two megawatt array. I think this is the same, this is the same uh, example I mentioned earlier where we had uh, a design flaw essentially where the uh, technicians were, eight, were, not, were never able to clean the array and the, the power output was just, was just horrendous. We, we basically had to use pressure, uh, pressure washers and, um, and we did notice an increase in power output. I think that you have to really just take into account these factors um, and make
0: a, an informed decision based on your location. As we wrap up the conversation, any parting thoughts that you'd like to leave for those who are uh, trying to dig deeper into the idea of asset management?
1: Yeah, um, well, thank you again for the opportunity to, to speak and to share um, the information about my books. And I really hope that the knowledge here can, can be disseminated and used in the field. That was, that was my intention. I would say I think that the shift towards reliability-centered maintenance from preventative maintenance is is good. Uh, We need to look at um, the cost, and we need to be very uh, we need we need to tailor our uh, maintenance program to our equipment rather than just rather than just taking a a one-size-fits-all approach. Very thoughtful, and
0: we're grateful to have you here on SunCast, Michael. Thanks a lot, Nico. Well, that's a wrap on today's discussion, but the conversation does not end here. I love hearing your feedback and seeing how you share the episodes over on LinkedIn. It definitely brings joy to me as I hope these episodes do the same for you. You can find the resources and highlights from this and every episode, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more, on the blog at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, would you please take two minutes out of your precious time to give us feedback? in our first ever listener survey. I do read each and every one of these and we're incorporating the feedback into making Suncast even better just for you. Well, we'll see you back here tomorrow for Flashback Friday, where we'll be tuning in to one of the most talked about sessions at the Podcast Lounge in Salt Lake City, all about customer acquisition strategies with three companies who are leading the way, helping you with your lead generation. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.